I'm afraid that um, as we continue to look at this issue, one facet of the doctrine of sanctification, one writer uh, wrote that sanctification is much like a diamond, and there are many facets to that diamond. And this is this section out of Romans chapter uh, 6, 7, and 8 is just one particular facet that we're looking at. And even within it, there are different angles. Today we're going to be looking at uh, verses 7 through 13 of chapter 7. And I've been simply talking about the rebellion that is within us. The rebellion that's within us. Some might ask, why do you have to keep um, talking about why, why do you talk about all the things that we do that are so bad? And, and I've got to tell you, uh, the Bible talks about all those things. And the Bible talks about the fact that if we're not careful, those things can, can quickly take over in our life. Um, you know, a very fit person can easily have more than one cookie over a long period of time each day and be not so fit anymore. Right? And so we got to take note of those things. But how it happens, too, is the issue. And, and so I just want you to have patience as, as, as Paul is developing this thought about how sanctification works out in our life, how the law of God interacts with that life in us. There's been a lot of talk, as we've read through and starting in chapter 6, Paul being accused by the Jews of disrespecting the law of God. And, and again, that is talking about the moral law of God. Which, in fact, the first one is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Right? You shouldn't make a graven image. Okay? And, and I mean, I've got a whole list of them right here. You shall not take uh, the name of the Lord your God in vain. To use God's name as a curse word. You should remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's the Lord's day for us. That's today. To keep it holy. Imagine following up a church service with a rated R movie. Makes no sense. Honor your father and your mother. Don't murder anybody. Is a good one. But don't hate them either. Same thing. Don't commit adultery. So sexual sin of all kinds. Stealing. Taking something that's not your own. Bearing false witness or lying about somebody or something. And then of course, coveting others' things that you don't have that you want for yourself. In which case, sometimes we've seen how coveting can lead to every single one of those other ones being broken. And so on. Paul was accused by the Jews because he was teaching grace, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That Paul was somehow saying that the law of God is of no longer of any import, that it's not important. And he said, certainly not. The command is good. It's good. And wouldn't you agree that all those things are good? And wouldn't you also agree that as we look at and we look at our culture... The very, ab- the very things that are happening now are simply the absence of the commands of God holding them back in our culture. The fact that they don't import those commands, so they don't care, so they go on and do those things. But for the Christian, for those who are born again, who claim to know Christ, there should be a holy desire or compulsion within us 
to want to exhibit those commands in our life, right? In other words, I shouldn't hear you in Walmart, because I'm on the other aisle, taking God's name in vain. I should not hear that. But if I do, I'm climbing over the top of that sucker, and I'm coming down on the other side and going to ask, how come you're doing that? Because that's not fitting. And do you realize you're bringing a reproach to the testimony of the saving grace of God in your life? And many other things. So the rebellion within. Let's go back to our problem statement. Let's go back to the problem that we see exhibited. The problem is a failure of 21st century Western Christians to understand and apply the doctrine of sanctification to personal holiness in their everyday lives. The result is a weak and lethargic church with no power, no passion, and an ever-increasing conformity to the world around them. And that's what we see happening. I'm going to throw a giant word on you real quick. It isn't to sound smart because we all know the truth about that. But I'm going to give you the, the, the Latin and then I'm going to give you the, 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 the English. Duplex gratia. It's fun, isn't it? it? has nothing to do with potatoes. Okay. Double duplex, double grace. Double grace. Duplex gratia, double grace. Justification is the monergistic or the single work of God whereby He Himself comes to us and saves us from our sin. We don't seek after Him, which is why there cannot really be a truly seeker-sensitive church. Nobody seeks after God. So God, He seeks and saves that which is lost. So He comes to us through what we call a process of regeneration. And that, that process of making alive can take however long God wills it. In your life. We all have different testimonies. Mine took about six hours. Others may be less. Others may be longer. But I know when I came to Christ. And those who also have a longer testimony of time. Know when they came to Jesus too. That's regeneration. That leads to justification. But then that justification. That whereby God declares us righteous before God. Because we've repented of our sin. We see our step. We agree with God. God you don't have to convince me anymore. I'm, I believe you. I'm guilty of sin. I am a sinner. I see my wickedness. Save me from it. And we become born again. And we become new creatures. The duplex gratia. The double grace. Is justification. And sanctification. Never being separated. It's double grace. Grace to save you. Grace to keep you. Grace to justify you before God. Grace to declare you righteous and clean you up and conform you to the image of Jesus for the rest of your life. And what we've had happen is, in an effort to, and I don't think it was nefarious by any means, but in an effort to convert more people, we chopped off sanctification and kind of kicked it over here. We're only concerned about getting people saved. So we're going to major on justification. And then, well, we hope the church will take over. So we don't understand that a sanctified life can only be a justified life. And a justified life can only be a sanctified life. You cannot separate them. 
So the duplex gratia, the double grace, is one of the reasons why we have a problem with which our problem statement seeks to deal with. We, we separate the fact that God wants me to be holy. He means that, by the way. Romans chapter 7. Honor of God and His Word, let's stand as we read the Scripture. Paul speaking in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through uh, 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Interesting question. Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Let's pray. Lord, these are deep and thick statements of truth. Only by your grace can we get them down. And so Lord appropriate them to our heart. And please give me the grace to explain it. In the very simple Swiss cheesy brain that I have. May your spirit take over and do the job. In Jesus name. Amen. I use the New Living Translation on the screen. Because I really prefer how it puts it. It's a lot more simple to read. Less cumbersome. They both say the same thing. That's why you shouldn't really get too much into deep arguments about Bible versions. Except for the bad ones. But, you know, but they're obvious. But uh, sometimes it helps to read something like the NLT when dealing with thick, heavy passages. So first of all, the law reveals our rebellion. We know we're rebellious. If any of you have little babies that are growing into little toddlers, you know the rebellion shows itself early on. Verse 7, Paul asks a question. Well then, am I suggesting... That the law of God is sinful? Am I suggesting that? He said, in fact, in course not, in fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. And you all know that. The moment someone says to you, you cannot go here. You cannot touch this. You cannot have that. There's something inside of you that really wants to do that or have that. Even for the most seasoned saint, there's something inside of you that triggers an alarm. Yeah, yeah, I do. Why can't I walk there? One of the things that gets me is when you go to these national parks and you walk around and they have a fence that says, no walking on the grass. Like, That's what grass is for. 
You know, so there's a rebellion in us that happens. It's everywhere. Tell me what I ought to do. We are what is known, and I've talked about before, called the autonomous self, where we think that the self is the center of the universe, and we have sole authority to do with it what we want. But, what's Paul saying? Is the law of God sinful? No, it is not. We wouldn't know right from wrong if we didn't know what the law of God was. I think of people who train horses or break horses. They get these horses in the round pen. They've never had a saddle on them. And if they're really green, they've never even had a halter on their head. First thing you do, you've got to get a rope around their neck. Then you've got to get them in the round pen. Then you begin to school them a little bit on authority. Cues. Taking care not to get yourself killed. Then you want to try to get a head stall on them. Greater control. Getting used to the fit and all that. And I'm not a horse trainer. I've seen it done and I've messed with horses. But at some point there becomes the need for a saddle. That's the most tense time. Something on the back that's never been there before. The whole time this this massive animal that could be used for so much good. That's been used to living for his own will or his own way. Or could be a, a filly, whatever. Suddenly they are under restraint. They can't just act any way they want. They have to put that energy to use for good. And that saddle now is the final use whereby he or her can carry that man or woman on its back. To carry weight, to carry camp supplies, to carry anything, to pull a cart even. But they first have to surrender to the smallest of promptings. That's what the law of God does to us. It brings us into subjection. And God takes that which He's put in us that's good. It's only from His Spirit because there's nothing in us good dwells naturally. So He puts it in there and He begins to use us. He brings His truth to bear on our lives. Turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Men and women who don't know Jesus, hate the truth of the gospel, especially the Ten Commandments, because it tells them what they cannot do. Right? Well, look at verse 19 with me. I'm going to just start in uh, verse 17 to, to kind of carry it through. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him, that's Jesus, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, if you don't know Jesus, according to the Scripture, you're condemned in your sin already. The wrath of God abides you on you right this very moment. But the mercy of God is preserving you under, from the wrath of God. So you need to be saved From God's wrath. And have your sins atoned for. But he says this. And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. 
They don't like the truth of the gospel when we share it with them because they have evil hearts, evil deeds. Only the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit of God can, can awaken a dead, black, dark heart. Verse 20, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. And so when we start saying to people, do you think you're a good person? If anyone here ever has listened to, uh, thank you, Ray Comfort, he uses the law of God in his witnessing presentations. And I got to tell you, I've had some second thoughts about it. I am not too sure that's not the best way to go during the, the presentation. Because we, are you a good person? Oh, yeah, I'm a great person. Everyone's a good person. Then he says, we'll kind of give you a test. And it goes through the law of God. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Used it as a cuss word. Well, yeah. Have you ever looked at a woman lustfully? Well, yeah. Well, have you ever lied? Well, yeah. Well, you ever stole? Well, yeah. Well, what does that make you? Lying, thieving, stealing, idolatrous, adulterer at heart. So you're a good person? No. You going to go to heaven? Yes. <laughs> Why? Because Jesus is all love and I don't have to worry about anything and stuff. John 3.18. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already. Men don't want to see the darkness in their heart. The law of God shows it to them. And it says, if you practice evil, you're going to hate the light because it shines upon it. Anyone ever here have a black vehicle? My dad always said, to don't buy a black truck. Why not? It's pretty when it's clean. That's the problem. And so I got my black 89 Ford. High school, I washed it and cleaned it up on the farm. And then not five seconds later, I see every cobweb, every dust speck, every fly that you could imagine is all right there. It was better when it was dirty. Okay. Men hate darkness. It's, the law shows us our sin. But it, notice in verse 21 it says, But he who does the truth... Notice the difference in attitude. He who does the truth comes to the light willingly. You don't have anything to be ashamed of. That his deeds may be clearly seen. That they have been done in God. Oh, would it be for a church to be able to open up the doors of its, of its, of its soul and say, look here, all clean. Wouldn't it be to have politicians not have to worry about what the news digs up? Because there's nothing to dig. And if they're going to have to say it, they're going to have to make it up. And it's just going to get more ridiculous as they go. Oh, to have a clean heart. And that's what the law of God does. Now, there's more. I read this from Charles Hodge. He's a, one of my favorite authors, uh, theologians. Uh, 1841, I think, was when he put out this book, The Way of Life, Christian Belief and Experience. You don't have to read this because it's really small. The law, the law of God, the law is the means of communicating the knowledge of sin. If we, if we go back to Romans chapter 7 and we read what Paul said there in verse 7. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. Well, this is what Charles Hodge is referring to because the law is an expression of the perfect holiness of God. The law is an expression of of the perfect 
holiness of God. So long as men judge themselves by themselves, and this is important to get, so long as men judge themselves by themselves and compare themselves among themselves, they will be in the dark as, their, as to their true character. What does the law do? Raises the bar. It is not until they judge themselves by the perfect standard of duty contained in the law of God that they can have any proper knowledge of their real character. It is in His light that we see light. It is only when we look away from sinful beings by whom we are surrounded and feel ourselves in the presence of the perfect purity of God that we are as sensible of the extent of our departure from the standard of excellence. It's only when we get next to God, in other words, do we see how rotten we really are. And in the green, it is therefore both the doctrine of the Bible and the experience of the people of God that the knowledge of sin arises from the apprehension of the divine excellence as revealed by the law. I think it's beautiful. If you can't love that, something wrong with your loving part. Because this is truth on fire here. In verses 8 through 11 then, as Paul's talking about now how sin, believe it, is so heinous that it weaponizes the good commandments of God. Now think about that. Something similar. Uh... Wicked people that want nothing to do with God, hate God, hate His law, are for perversions and murders, yet when they are trying to be virtuous and signal to you, the masses, their goodness, they want to invoke Bible or the name of God. They weaponize it to use it to sin. Look at verse 8. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me, I'm sorry, I'm going to read on the screen. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. And it makes sense. If I don't know there's such a thing as coveting, then I don't, I'm not a coveter. I can just want your stuff and take you, knock you in the head to get it, and it's okay. At one time, Paul says, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command to, not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life. Ooh, that's bad. Ooh, I want to do it. And he said, I died. I died. It killed me. I am now a sinner. What does the Bible say sin brings forth? Death. Okay. But the gift of God is. That's right. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they died. Okay, so... The law of God points us to our need for Christ. We are dead in our sins. Jesus, through the word of God, through himself, through through who he is, through his death and efficacious death on the cross, brings us to new life. He said, so I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It, and on this last line, I like how this is used. It used the commands to kill me. 
Look, look, look back in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. 1 through 8. Pretty much everything we're dealing with here, we have to go back to the garden. And then we can understand it. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And Satan is still questioning the word of God today. And you're in my life. Did God say, or, or, or worse, did God really mean it? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Who are you going to believe right now? What God says or what this really fruity world says? For God knows that in the day you eat of, your, eat of it, your eyes will be opened And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's always been the angle of Satan to try to convince mere mortals that they can become like God. Lots of cults have risen up in that vein because that's a very intriguing thought to the mere mortal, isn't it? Well, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and as for the first time in created history, Adam and his wife hid themselves. From the presence of the Lord God among the trees. And we've been hiding ever since. Because that death made us dead. And dark. And our deeds were evil. How can we. What can we do. Sin is a terminal. Terminal disease. Verse 13 of Romans. I don't know why I'm flipping in my Bible, because I need to be there. It says, how can that be? Did the law which is good cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. That's the weaponization. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands For its own evil purposes. Oh yeah, it's really not any different than someone who says, I'm going to go out at night and I'm going to look for someone who's in desperate need of help. Probably a woman. And I'm going to make sure that she has that help and I'm going to offer to help her out. And when I get close enough to her and I've gained her trust, I'm going to attack her. And subdue her. And throw her in the van. And drive off. I'm going to use kindness. And trust. As a weapon. 
And, and, and that happens all over the place, not just in that kind of a situation or sin, but any other thing too. Panhandlers use the virtue of care and concern and compassion. They weaponize it so to make you feel guilty if you don't give them something. It's another example. And so many. Sin is so wicked that it will misuse and misrepresent the virtue and goodness of the law of God to condemn the wicked and drive them from God Himself. And that is the, the worst part of all. I was thinking about this man's uh, testimony that we just watched on the screen that Sarah and them had shown about Operation Christmas Child, grown up in a Christian home. I just wonder how much of a struggle. It would be interesting to know if God loves me, why did you know this happen? But the goodness of God leads us to repentance. I like Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is His ear heavy that it cannot hear. But notice it says in verse 2 here, Your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, and your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue has muttered perversity. Don't blame God. That darkness is in you. And the only thing that can redeem you and free you is the blood of Jesus. As you cry out in mercy... For in repentance, saying, God, I'm undone. Save me. So, don't fall for the lie. Don't fall for the lie. I'm going to go ahead and turn back to Romans here. Love ribbon markers. Oh, no. Therefore, the law is holy, it says in verse 12. And the commandment holy and just. Remember that. When everyone ever asks you about the Ten Commandments, whether it's being used in evangelism or talking with a friend about faith or whatever, okay? I want you to remember this about the law of God. It is holy. It is just. And it is good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. There are two ways to live the Christian life. And this is from Dane Ortland's book, if you remember, Gentle and Lowly, we went through. You can live it either for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. You can try to earn it, or you can live from it. You can live for the smile of God or from it. You can try to forge for a new identity as a son or daughter of God or from it. For your union with Christ or from it. You cannot earn God's favor by trying to keep the law. The law Shows you your need for a Savior. It's good. 
Now take what the law says, that you're guilty of sin and you need to be redeemed. And go to the one who never had any other gods before him because he was God. And go to the one who never made for himself a carved image because he was the image. And don't and, and, and make sure you go to the one who never took the name of the Lord his God in vain because he was the Lord God and every word he spoke was good. And he also acknowledged and honored and, re, and redeemed that Sabbath day. And he honored his father and his mother and he did not murder and he was, did not commit adultery. He did not steal. He did not bear false witness. And he did not covet because he was satisfied in his father alone. So go to him for your righteousness. Go to the one who kept every jot and tittle as your savior. Galatians 3.3 says, how foolish can you be, Paul writes, after starting your new lives in the spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? That's a pitfall that many Christians fall into. Ah, me too. Me. I do that. I do that. My battery died. <laughs> the law here was we knew we were dealing with bad batteries and we just did the best we could. <laughs> <laughs> but, Christian, I want to give you some advice. There will never come a time in your Christian faith. And your walk with the Lord that you won't need the same amount of grace that saved you to sustain you. Remember double grace. Duplex gratia. Double grace. Grace to save you. And grace to keep you. We're going to go into a time of corporate prayer now. To close the service. This is a time to pray about many things. It's a time to pray corporately together. Us. We, ours, yours, O God. Not me, mine, or I. No singing. Just scripture. Appropriate language. Of heart to frame your prayer. We know what we're up against. We know where the Lord has positioned us at this time in history. By his, if you've been in Sunday school class, his divine providence. This is our time. This is our moment. Amen? So I'm going to ask um, Brother Kim McHenry if you would start us off in prayer. And if you pray, please stand. And don't let there be a lag between prayers. Let's keep it going. And then when, if no one else prays, we will close the service.